Amen. All right, well, let's turn back once again to Philippians chapter 4, and I want to draw your attention to verse number 11. Philippians chapter 4, verse number 11. The Apostle Paul, of course, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Paul says, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I'm not sure if we are victims of present, the present day, but I'm not sure there's ever been a day in which people seem to be more discontented than they are at this very moment. There seems to be an abundance of restlessness. There seems to be an abundance of people that just cannot seem to be satisfied or content or happy no matter what their lot in life is. Even as humanity continues to progress intellectually, they continue to progress educationally, man continues to acquire more and more things, more possessions, uh, continues to acquire uh, wealth in some cases. Daily pleasures do not seem to bring man to a state of contentment. Discontentment is really on every hand. It seems to be on every side. There's no class of people that are discontented. The rich are discontented. The poor are discontented. No matter what class you are, there is a level of discontentment. Most people seem to be dissatisfied with life. Sadly, we could understand in some ways how a person who does not know the Lord might find emptiness in the world. They would find discontentment with the things and the stuff that they have. But why would Christians, why would God's people be affected with the same spirit of discontentment? How can they, we, who have all that we could possibly desire in Christ Jesus, still be found discontented? So the question tonight is, is really easy to answer, I think, because Paul tells us the answer to the question. But the subject is contentment. Is it learned? Is it learned? Well, Paul very clearly shows us in verse 11, he himself says, I have learned. I have learned in whatsoever state I am, notice that, therewith to be content. So is it learned? The question, the answer to that question, I think is pretty clear. Yes, it is learned. But is contentment practical? Or is it simply a biblical precept and a principle that God is saying, I want you to consider this precept and this principle, or are we to practically live contented lives? Well, the answer to that question is that Paul says, I've learned that whatever state I'm in, I'm content. That tells us it, contentment is attainable. Contentment is attainable in this life. It's practical, not only for the here, but also for tomorrow. But is contentment fleeting? In other words, does the biblical contentment that Paul talks about, is it contentment one day and discontented the next? 
or sadly, how our world seems to operate, contented one minute, discontented the next. Is Paul talking about something that is just a few hours of satisfaction? Or is he talking about something that can be a lifetime of contentment? There are a lot of topics and subjects in the Bible that I think some we make the mistake of saying, well, God mentions these things, but it's not really attainable. Well, I think that's the wrong approach to Scripture. If we're told that contentment, we are to be content with things that we have, we'll look at some other biblical supported uh, biblical support here in a little bit, it is attainable. But Paul tells us that these questions that we have Do we have answers to them? Paul says again, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Now, to help us understand more and more as to why this is even more amazing that Paul is contented, and for many of you that are in the scriptures, this is not new to you. I'm not giving you a new truth tonight. But remember what Paul's situation was when he penned these words. The Apostle Paul was not in a great environment. He was not in an emperor's palace enjoying the best food and the best drink and the best accommodations. When he wrote these words, he was in a prison cell. When he wrote these words, he was chained. And oftentimes the Apostle Paul was chained to another person. Imagine that, being chained to a guard because they did not want him to escape. And boy, how that person had to hear the gospel over and over and over again when you're chained to the Apostle Paul. He was not being entertained. He did not have all the pleasures of life. Instead, he was in bonds. Earlier in the letter to the church, to the Philippians, he writes in Philippians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he says, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul had was found himself, his circumstances were he was a prisoner. Certainly his circumstances were not the basis of his contentment. That's one of the first mistakes we make. The first Big mistake we make is that your contentment is connected to your circumstances. It is not your circumstances that bring you contentment. Because if anybody could have said, I can't find any reason to be contented, it would have been the Apostle Paul chained to a jailer and in bonds and in a prison cell. Instead, he was in bonds. Paul often referred to himself in the letters as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul, Paul thought about that in two ways. He was a literal prisoner at times, but he also used the word prisoner as an indication that he was a servant to God and that he counted it a privilege uh, to be in bonds to Jesus Christ, to carry the gospel and be an ambassador. So Paul understood both sides of that coin. Yet in all situations and in all circumstances, Paul says, very boldly, I would add, I mean, think again what Paul is saying back in our text. He says that I have learned in whatsoever state I am. That's a pretty bold statement. It's rather bold to say no matter what comes, 
I'm content. Because again, our contentment is often only determined by our circumstances. Paul said, it doesn't matter what circumstance you bring my way, I'm going to be contented. But again, what's the key? He learned it. He learned how to be content. Now, there's a vast difference when we study the scriptures. There's a vast difference between a precept, a principle that we understand, and then actually practicing it. We could all recite many of God's principles. We could probably go down the Ten Commandments, hopefully, and we could give all the Ten Commandments. But do we practice those Ten Commandments? Or do we just know them? Contentment's the same way. We know about contentment. We know that we're supposed to be content. We know we're supposed to beware of things that affect our contentment, yet it's very difficult to put into practice. Oftentimes, the reason we struggle in putting things into practice is because we are looking for the ideal circumstances to practice the principles. In other words, God, give me good circumstances and I'll be content and I will glorify you. Well, that's not scripture. Paul is saying whatever state I'm in, no matter how bad it gets, I've learned to be content. In whatsoever state, how in the world could Paul enter into an actual experience of contentment? Paul didn't say, the minute I was saved, the minute I was converted on the Damascus Road, I suddenly gained contentment. No, he attributes his contentment to learning. Contentment doesn't just come at your conversion. Oftentimes, new believers have this idea that when they get saved and they're converted, that suddenly their life is going to become much easier. Well, biblically speaking, your life in most cases becomes more difficult after you're a child of God. As a matter of fact, if you're living in this world and you're trying to stand for Christ, you're finding that the world's not actually supporting the direction you're trying to go. You're actually swimming upstream. So you're going to have a really hard time finding circumstances that are going to lead to your contentment if you're looking for circumstances to give you contentment. Paul said, I learned this. He attributes this to learning about the reality of who God is. Now, other people say, well, I'm not content because that's just not my temperament. Paul makes no mention about I controlled my temperament or I can't be contented because I'm just not wired that way. How many people do we hear make excuses about biblical practice by saying, well, that's just not who I am? That's not an excuse to be discontented. Paul said, I've learned. Well, that means Paul had to learn a lot of things about not only the Lord, but he had to learn a lot of things about himself. Paul, first of all, learned how to surrender his entire life over to Christ. How many times does Paul make reference to the fact that his life is no longer his own? He's not living for himself anymore. That's one of the things he had to learn. I think we should also take note of the fact that Paul wrote this statement that he was contented near the end of his life which makes the statement 
either A, you can look at it one of two ways. Uh, he had lived a majority of his life after his conversion in contentment. Or maybe he is just now finding contentment at the end of his earthly life. But it should be pointed out, I think, that contentment that Paul talked about was clearly not the result of comfortable conditions or good circumstances. Most people think, and I'm afraid that a lot of Christians believe this, that contentment is impossible unless my circumstances change. In other words, I can't be happy, I can't be satisfied unless I have this, or I get this, or something is removed from my life that's difficult. Contentment is not found in getting the desires of your heart. Oftentimes, the situation, the circumstance we're asking for and the things we want is not actually what we need. It's actually bad for us. It's actually not for our good. Now, Paul, again, in the book of Philippians, the letter, remember, he's writing to people and he wants people to be encouraged. I mean, you'll notice how the first part of the chapter begins. Paul talks about these, remember we talked about these principles and precepts? How many of us know, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice. If you've been a Christian any amount of time, we all know that verse. How often does Paul say we should rejoice? Always. How many of us know, verse number 6, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. We know that verse. Here's the difference between understanding a principle and a precept and actually practicing it. Paul says in verse 7 that the result of being careful for nothing, rejoicing in the Lord is what? Verse 7, the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. There's the practice. As you practice the principles and the precepts, what does God say? The peace of God. Most of our discontentment is because we don't have the peace of God. Because we're not living the principles. We're not putting them into practice. Folks, a Christian life is not being able to rattle off precepts and principles. It's about the practice of them. We don't just talk about holy living. We're supposed to live holy lives. We don't just talk about, hey, uh, you know, we, we see, we, we are able, matter of fact, we're able to counsel other people in their trials better than we're able to counsel, uh, counsel ourselves. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones said once. He said, you, 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 you should talk more to yourself about the truths of what God's word teaches. Isn't it amazing someone comes to us and they have a struggle or a trial? We know exactly the verse to take them to. We know exactly what to tell them. Yet if we're honest with ourselves, we don't even practice what we're counseling. Imagine telling someone else, I know the secret to contentment. And you're sitting there in a discontented state. Paul is all of these truths in chapter four are leading to this. Notice Paul also talks about what we think about. Verse eight. Now, this is so important, and I, I, again, I won't go into detail, but if I could tell you how many times this verse is spoken in our home over the years, th this verse has been spoken so many times 
about when our, our minds start going the wrong way, about thinking on the right things. Paul says that we are to think, first of all, on things that are true, things that are honest, things that are just, things that are pure, things that are lovely, things that are of a good report. Think on these things. And then notice, Paul even talks about how he acquired these. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard, and I love what he says here, and seen in me, do. You see what Paul's doing there. <laughs> You've learned these things. You see them in me. Now do them yourself. And again, what is the result? And the God of peace shall be with you. There is no doubt there is a direct connection between understanding the, the principles and the precepts and the practice of them that lead to a mind and a heart that is stayed and focusing upon the right things. We'll get to this, but discontentment is often a result because you're thinking on the wrong things. Your mind is being taken over with the things that are more temporal, not the things that are spiritual. That's the difference. Now again, we're all bombarded every day with temporal thinking. You, you don't have to actually plan that. Our lives begin every day when we get up. Temporal things are in front of us. Temporal things we have to do. Places we have to go. People we have to see. But the reality is, is if we don't intentionally learn to think on the right things, this is often what leads us spiritually in the wrong way. We're just not thinking properly. Contentment's the same way. We're not thinking properly. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Uh, Paul uh, is, is teaching us that contentment is possible when we think upon the right things and our desires are upon the right things. A prison, in the, the psychologist of the day, would say there's no way a man in prison can be contented. But yet, Paul says, do you want to see a contented man? Look at me in prison, and you're finding out I've learned how to be content even in chains. So this much we do know is clear. Contentment does not come from the outside, it comes from within. Contentment is not sought by the pleasures of this world. Contentment must be sought from God. In other words, instead of praying for God to change your circumstances, which is one of the most common prayers of Christians, by the way, the subject of most of our prayers is God change my circumstances when it should be God change my heart. That's a fair assessment, is it not? Lord, remove, as Paul said, remove the thorn from my flesh and then I'll be happy or remove my circumstances. No, Contentment doesn't come from the change in the outward circumstances. But it is fair to say that contentment is a biblical command and contentment can be attained and not just temporarily. So we've answered that question. Is it practical? Absolutely. Is it based upon biblical precept and principle? Yes, it is putting those principles and precepts into practice. Secondly, contentment 
is being satisfied in the providence of God. It's being satisfied with God's hand in your life. Again, we hear the word providence. We hear the word sovereignty. We love those words. We love the implications of what sovereignty and providence mean unless it comes to us and our circumstances just aren't what we want them to be. Then we say, I don't like my circumstances. The same circumstances that you rejoice in God about in life are the same things that are governing your personal life. You say, well, I don't like the state that I'm in. Paul said, whatever state I'm in, I've learned to be content. This idea that we're to pray to God to change my circumstances. It's what the prosperity folks are teaching you. You want to change your circumstances? Here's how you get God to change your circumstances. Paul didn't ask to change them. Paul said, I've learned now, there's a part that you have to give that Paul, when he was asking for the removal of the thorn in the flesh, maybe Paul was even struggling a little bit there. Maybe he didn't even understand at that time fully what that meant. But by the time he writes the letter to the church at Philippi, he fully understands contentment now because his contentment is not based on his outward circumstances. His contentment is based upon Christ. And that's where contentment comes from. Contentment it's based upon what Christ has done. So the sovereign providence of God, it's the opposite of complaining. <laughs> Been going with going through the with my seventh graders at school about the wilderness and the people of Israel in the wilderness for all those years and how quickly they complained. How quickly that even when God, quote unquote, changed their circumstances, gave them manna, didn't take them long that that manna was just repulsive. Didn't take them long before it just wasn't good enough. They complained. We, they were so discontented that they said we would rather go back to Egypt and be put back in slavery than to stay in our present circumstances wandering around this wilderness. Well, we all know the wilderness shouldn't have been they shouldn't have been out there for 40 years they only had a two-week journey at most but they kept complaining and murmuring they were discontented no matter what god gave them and that's the same thing even if god gave you whatever that big desire of your heart is right now it'll only be a matter of minutes you're going to be discontented with that it won't be enough because no matter how much you get no matter how much changes contentment is not going to last based upon that Paul, in the book of Romans, now we don't, we don't think of this as a classic passage about contentment, but I think if you look at the perspective of what Paul was talking about uh, in Romans 9, and he's talking about uh, who has the right to question God. And in Romans 9.20, Paul says, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? I know uh, there's so much theology there and there's a lot of deep thoughts. But do you realize that even the circumstances of our life 
God is governing those. Now, of course, we can make terrible choices in our life that puts us in bad places. Remember, providence and sovereignty does not mean God is picking up and moving you from place to place. You make free will choices that put you in bad situations. And some of our discontent is because we made bad decisions that were not biblically based. But who are we to reply against God? Why have you done this to me? Well, Paul could have said that in prison. God, how much more can I do for you? He could have said. I'm, he could have used terms like, I'm your choice servant. Why would I have to go through this type of thing? No, he just, he accepted it. He accepted God's providence in his life. There's no question, and nobody's here tonight trying to sell you on the idea that contentment is not a major battle and it is not a major struggle because it is. I, I think it's fair to say everyone in this room struggles with contentment. And it is a struggle for all of us. It's a daily struggle. Some of us, it's a moment-by-moment -moment struggle. It's a minute-by-minute. -minute. I mean, satisfied one minute, discontented the next. One phone call, one text, one email, one interaction with a person completely changes our outlook on life. Paul said, whatever state I'm in, Whatever comes, I have learned to be content. It is a battle. Now, instead of complaining against the place in life they are, a contented person is thankful that his condition and his circumstances are not worse than they are. So see, a person who's discontented is always going to see the worst in it. A contented person is going to say, praise God, it's not worse than it already is. Or, praise God, I'm not actually getting what I really deserve because I don't deserve any of God's grace and I don't deserve any of God's favor. Thank God it's not worse than it is. You know, we've all heard that cliche, somebody always has it worse than you do, right? And that is true. But again, that's not the source of contentment. Telling somebody you're better off than this person is not going to lead to contentment. But we ought to thank God that it's not as, the circumstances are not as bad as they could be. So instead of us desiring more or God to change, we should rejoice in the fact, and a contented person rejoices in the fact that God still cares for them. Even in prison, the Apostle Paul knew the love of Christ for him. He did not equate being in prison with God's abandonment of him. Now, oftentimes we get in a bad circumstance, in a bad situation, and again, we say something like this, I feel like God's abandoned me. God never abandons his children. The same God that was with you on the mountaintop is the same God that was with you in the bad circumstance. God's not abandoning you. Again, our circumstances can lead us to think improperly. To view a situation, we're not viewing it biblically, we're viewing it from the eyes of a temporal, carnal man. We are to be content with what we have. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, there's a number of verses we'll, we'll look over here in the time we have tonight. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. The writer says, let your conversation or your conduct be without covetousness. 
and be content with such things as ye have. Now, there's a connection also between coveting and lack of contentment. We know we're not supposed to covet. How often do we see sometimes another believer, what they have might be something materially, might be something spiritually. And we covet after it and we find we're no longer content. All of these are connected. But he says, be content with such things as ye have, for he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. There's a precept and a principle and a grand promise of God we know about. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. How much better can it get than that? That Almighty God who has saved me through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has made a promise to His people, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That ought to be the very end of our contentment right there. God is never going to leave me. Even when I reach the point of stepping out into eternity, He is not going to leave me. No human being can guarantee that they will always be there for you and that they will not forsake you. People forsake one another every day, but God says, I will not forsake my people. Be content with what you have. Whatever circumstance you're in, be satisfied with what God has put. It's fair to say, and Paul, again, back in our text, is showing us, he's dealing with all of these uh, words of the day. Being fretful, being anxious, being dissatisfied, being discontent. All of these things go hand in hand. Again, we read through some of those verses that Paul talks about, be careful for nothing. Don't be anxious for anything. Okay, don't, don't fret over these situations. So it's fair to say anxiety and discontentment also go hand in hand. But Paul also, as we think about this contentment, one of the great hindrances to contentment is covetousness, as we just, as we just read there in Hebrews 13. Covetousness will always destroy your contentment. If you cannot get your eyes off of what someone else has or what something else that you think you're lacking, you will never be content. Covetousness, covetousness in Luke 12, verse 15, the Lord says, take heed and beware of what? Covetousness. Don't covet after. Colossians 3.5 says, covetousness, which is idolatry. Something that is an idol simply means that the affection of our heart is set upon that. Idolatry can be defined as setting our heart upon something material instead of setting our heart upon the things of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Discontentment is often... The result, or discontentment is, is the, uh, we see it in the fact that our heart is set on material things more than it's set on spiritual things. There's a, a passage in um, Proverbs 30 um, that just, I, I was reading this yesterday 
and it demonstrates what the covetous heart actually looks like. And, and again, Proverbs are, is, a, is, a, is a great book to read, but sometimes it's hard to read through it because it's so many thoughts, just one after the other. But if you look at Proverbs 30, covetousness, or to covet after, is described as this, uh, this creature. We'll read it together. Uh, Proverbs 30, verse 15, uh, says the horse leech. Now, again, I, I, I read this and I, I, I don't know what a horse leech is. So I have to go look it up. A horse leech is a blood-sucking worm. The horse leech hath two daughters crying, give, give. There are three things that are never satisfied. Yea, four things say not it is enough. The grave, the barren womb, the earth that is not filled with water, and the fire that saith not it is enough. Notice the emphasis on the blood-sucking worm as it's constantly saying, give me, give me, give me. It's never enough. It's never satisfied. That's how covetousness and contentment are tied together. If it's always about getting more, you are never going to be content. And again, no matter what you get, that will not satisfy you it won't be enough. But it's interesting that Solomon uses that visual illustration there of a blood-sucking worm. The covetous man always desires more, which leads to his discontentment. If he has a little, he's discontented. If he has a lot, he's discontented. But then Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, when he's writing to young, young Timothy, also deals with this subject of contentment. It's amazing how many times Paul actually made mention of this, how many times the scripture makes mention of it. 1 Timothy 6, 8. Again, we probably know this verse. Uh, let's, go back to, uh, let's go back to verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain... Not, he's not saying here's, here's one of the options. It is certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and raiment, let us therewith be, or therewith be content. Think about that. If you have food and you have raiment, you should be content. Yeah, but, but Lord, you, if you have food and raiment, be content. Contentment's a battle. Because you're battling not only the desires of the flesh, but you're desiring the reality that your heart continues to desire more and more. Just like that blood-sucking worm. Give me, give me, give me, because I'm never satisfied. All these things go together. The Lord in Luke chapter number 3, remember when He gives the illustration of the man hiring laborers. And he tells them, um, or he's talking to the, the soldiers and their, their wages. I'm sorry, he's talking about the, the soldiers and demanding. And he says, in verse 14, he says, be content with your wages. Be content with what I've given you. Be content with what is yours. 
Godliness with contentment we saw in 1 Timothy 6.6 is great gain. What do we gain? Contentment delivers you from worry. Contentment delivers you from anxiety and fretfulness. But it also delivers you from greed and selfishness. Now again, this doesn't mean that there are not circumstances in our life that lead to these things. There are, there are times we're going to face things that are going to make us very anxious. And there are things that are going to make us very fretful. But we are supposed to be content, be satisfied. Enjoy what God has already given you instead of what you think God hasn't given you. A lot of times we think God's keeping something from us. What a contrast there is. In that same passage we just read in 1 Timothy 6 verses 9 through 10, Paul goes on teaching Timothy. He says, But they that will be or desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Again, all these thoughts, all these principles go together. Paul in Philippians 4, when he says, I've learned to be, be content with the things that you have. It sounds so easy. It's an amazing thing we try to teach our children when they're very little, and you can watch this happen. Children are discontented creatures. You, you watch, at a, watch at any kind of a gathering with children and watch when something is passed out, whether it's a snack or a dessert or a gift or a toy. It doesn't matter what toy, what they get, they will look at another child and they will say, I want that one. And we'll sit and we'll tell these children, you be happy with what you have. And then we don't do that ourselves. We teach our children, be content. But then we have that happen to us and we teach our children, we're not content either. We're always looking for something more. Again, is it amazing how we can tell our children or tell someone else, hey, be content with what you have. But then when it's back on us, we have a hard time being content. So thirdly, what is it? Contentment is a product, is the product of a heart that's learned to rest in God. Contentment is a blessed life. If you meet a person who is truly content, you are meeting a person who is truly blessed. Because what true contentment is, it's what, the soul, it's what the soul actually enjoys. Again, remember, it's not based upon circumstances, not based upon stuff. It's the contentment of the soul. Contentment is a peace, which Paul talks about there in Philippians 4, that does pass understanding. You know, again, the peace of God which passeth all understanding. How can a man like Paul be content in a prison cell? That passes all understanding. But then notice probably one of the most quoted verses in Philippians. is Philippians 
people etch this on everything. Athletes use it as their mantra. They use it as their, they use it as their, this is how I'm going to get the job done. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Look at the context. This is about contentment. It's not about winning on the sports field. It's about contentment. It's about humility. It's about not being covetous. It's about not being anxious. It's about thinking on the right things. He says, I can do all things. What are those things? Well, he talks about the things he was thinking about in verses 8 and 9. How did he come to know those things? He learned them. How did he learn how to be content? He learned them. What is his conclusion? I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Which means I can be content. It is attainable. I can be content in whatsoever state I am. Paul's not putting this out here as something that's unattainable. He says, no, it's actually very attainable, but you have to learn it. Nobody's going to be able to crown you with contentment and say, okay, when we pray and dismiss in just a moment, all of you are going to leave here contented people. No, you have to learn it. But you have to apply the principles and the precepts. Sovereignty of God doesn't mean we just sit and just wait for God to do everything. We are to meditate in the Word. We're to study the Word. We're to pray the Word, preach the Word, sing the Word. We're to, be, we're to let the Word be in us. That's how we learn it. Contentment is only possible when we understand the providence of God and we rest in that. We understand that everything we have comes from the hand of a sovereign God who, by the way, is too wise to be wrong. God does not make an error in judgment. He doesn't make an error in anything that He does. But He's also too loving of His children to do something that's not for their good. Now again, humanly speaking, there are things that happen to believers in this life you and I are not going to be able to comprehend and we are not going to be able to say, how can that be for that person's good? The only reason we know that is because that's what the Bible says. You are going to walk through valleys and things in your life that you are going to say, I do not see any good coming from this. Humanly speaking. But if it's from the sovereign hand of God, we have to rest in that. We have to rest that God, we truly do believe God knows what he's doing. Even when Paul wrote in Romans 12, verse 2, he talked about even our experience of how God makes all things work together for good and how it's our reasonable service. He says that it's learned by proving what is good and acceptable and perfect. What is the perfect will of God? True contentment is found by learning Christ. How I find true contentment is by learning Christ. Now in the context of Philippians 4, we know that one of Paul's main themes was about the advancement of the gospel. 
Because when we were reading back there in Philippians 1, remember he talks about preaching Christ and how even how his bonds, he was in bonds in order that the gospel might be advanced. It's accurate to say that discontented people will have no interest in advancing the gospel. If you're so discontented with life, you will have no interest in advancing the gospel. You will have no evangelistic zeal. You'll have no desire to give the gospel to people because discontentment is often too much of an inward look at your own self that you're not looking around you and seeing what really should be the most important thing. See, discontentment's not just an inconvenience. We're commanded not to be discontented. We are supposed to be contented people. Real contentment is only possible when we spend time in the presence of God, when we're in the presence of the Lord. Again, Paul tells us then in verse 12 and 13, he says, I know both how to be abased, I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full, notice what he says, and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And again, that's when he uses that verse. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. It's only when we realize that our greatest relationship with Christ That's where we learn contentment. Christ was never discontented. I know the argument is, yeah, well, he was God. He was never discontented. Our discontentment leads to our complaining, our murmuring. It's only by a fellowship we have with God and to be able to delight in God's will and God's providence and God's plan that we're going to learn to be content. Contentment is a battle. It's attainable. It is learned. Your prayer tonight may need to be, Lord, I need to learn to be content. It might be, there may be a time where we need to repent of continually praying that God would just change our circumstances all the time instead of praying, God, teach me to be content. Teach, change my heart in this. Instead of always praying for better things, better circumstances, a better condition. It's an amazing thing to me. And again, you could read the entire book of Philippians in one single sitting easily. Meditate on the entirety of the book of Philippians and see if that won't encourage you. When you see a a contented man whose number one goal in life was to advance the gospel, and when when our eyes get off of ourselves and get on the importance of what we've been called to do, we won't have a lot of time to dwell on what we don't have or dwell on our circumstances. We will be advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul had to learn that. And I think it's important that we understand that too. But is it attainable? Absolutely. So the answer to the question, contentment, is it learned? Yes. It's learned. Where do we learn it from? We learn it from God Himself. Be in His Word. Meditate on His Word. Don't just know Him in precept and in principle. Actually put these things into practice.
that's where we start to see a, a person who is truly content. Let's pray together.